Inside Psychology Nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of your hosts, and I'm here as always with my co-host, my friend, and chair of the UW Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Georgina Wilson Dungis. How's it going, G? It is going terrific. Um, we are into the semester; it is rolling along. Uh, fall is here. Basically, by the time you all are listening to this, fall will have arrived. And so like everything pumpkin spice is is around. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of that. I am just a basic person. <laughs> what is your favorite like fall activity in Wisconsin? Like what's the thing that you love doing? Oh, uh, I I just I love just hiking out in nature. I love the smell of like leaves on the ground and when it rains and it's just so beautiful here i feel like fall is uh is green bay's time to shine um and my friends would be very upset if i didn't also say that i loved packer games as, <laughs> as well um, i know you have opinions about that ryan that are not ones that you should share on the podcast <laughs> wow uh, football season is always really exciting at green bay too how about you? I uh I enjoy I enjoy the fall for football reasons. I more enjoy it for soccer reasons, especially lately. But I will um I'll so I I think you know this. I worked at an apple orchard for a very long time when I was in college. And so my favorite fall pastime is is making trips to apple orchards to get I want to say apples, which I love apples, but actually more apple donuts, which is my preferred treat in the fall so along uh, with cider for that matter but yeah so good but so i agree good. there's nothing quite like the midwest in the fall uh because the the changes in leaves and so on is great and so that probably leads us to our guest today who is new to the midwest and so i hope that she was taking notes while we were talking <laughs> Yes. No, you're right. That is a good segue. And I, I'm worried that I'm going to discover that there are other better places in the fall and that she might have strong feelings about that. So let's introduce her. She can tell us where we are wrong about the fall. Um, our guest today is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. She researches empathy and perspective taking. She has a PhD in cognitive, social, and developmental psychology from the New School for Social Research. And she completed her postdoctoral training at the National Institute for Health where she investigated the health benefits of emerging technologies. Please welcome Dr. Allison Jane Martingano. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I am really excited to talk to you about your research. I was reading um, the, the stuff you shared with us beforehand, and I just have lots and lots of questions. So um, unless you want to quickly comment on the fall in the Midwest versus fall elsewhere discussion, which I would understand. I'm, I mean, I agree that, that autumn here is really, really nice. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I, I always like to start um, by defining some terms for people, especially it feels like especially relevant now when there are versions of these terms all over social media and people may be starting from a different place as us. So when you talk about empathy, when you talk about perspective taking, what, what do those things mean? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. <laughs> and as a, a saying amongst, amongst empathy researchers that there's as many definitions of empathy as there are researchers in the field. And I think that's probably true. 
Um, for me, there's sort of two main things um, that I consider empathy. And one of them uh, is sort of an emotional response uh, to, to somebody else. So if you see someone who's suffering, having that those feelings of concern and compassion. And then there's also a more cognitive aspect, which is sort of more like perspective taking where you can understand what someone else is going through without necessarily having those emotional reactions. And uh, part of part of your research, like you're you're looking at these core terms, these core concepts about empathy and the more cognitive perspective taking, but you're also combining that with technology. Uh, tell me, like. What's that mean, first of all? And how did you get there? Tell yeah, us a little bit about the story, the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the reason I got interested um, in technology and its, its impact on empathy was actually because there's a, a lot of hype around this. Um, a lot of people thinking that virtual reality is, is um the world's greatest empathy machine, that it's, it's going to lead us to be more empathic and, and compassionate people. And I got to say, I was a little skeptical about that uh, when I first read it. Um, and I, I continue to be skeptical in my research today. But what I've, I've really realized is that there is a place for virtual reality and other technologies to help us develop empathy. But it really depends what type of empathy we're talking about. So different experiences have different effects. So virtual reality, for example, seems to have a really great effect on that emotional kind of empathy, but not so much on the cognitive. And, you know, I, I heard you just say there um, that we can change our empathy. Uh, and so having known nothing about this, so here's my ignorance uh, showing, uh, I, I always thought like people are either empathetic in general or they're not, like more of a, a, of a trait um, rather than a state. Tell me a little bit about how empathy can grow or diminish and how technology helps grow it. Yeah, yeah. So you should, next time you're in my office, you should take a look at the, the picture above my desk, which is a, a, a picture of a heart muscle. And it says empathy is a muscle. And that's really the sort of metaphor that I tend to run with here, which is that empathy can be strengthened and improved just like any other muscle. But just like any other muscle, it requires effort and hard work. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. So I'd agree with you that empathy can also be a trait. Some people are just better at this than others. Some people empathize more than others. But it is also something that with enough dedicated effort, we can improve upon. And in some cases, technology sort of provides that opportunity for us to practice empathizing. Uh, so it's important that the technology doesn't do the work for us exactly, but gives us that opportunity for us to practice and work on our empathizing skills ourselves. So what does that practice look like? What What is it, whether it's usually, uh, you know, VR or other technologies or not, what, is it, what does it look like to practice this? Yeah, well, quite frequently, it just involves sort of replicating regular social interactions that you might have in the real world in the virtual world. Uh, so a virtual reality experience, for example, could have somebody who 
comes into your virtual room and, and tells you that they're having an issue and then allows you to practice sort of in a low stakes environment, how you would respond, how would you empathize? And, and these are the sorts of um, experiences that I worked on when I was at NIH. Uh, so for medical students or other medical practitioners to practice empathizing when they're with their patients. And if you practice with a virtual patient where there is room to mess up, uh, it means that you might improve those abilities for when you actually have to do it with a real patient. But it doesn't have to be VR. So other technologies can also give us really any opportunity to practice those skills. So you could imagine, for example, uh, that uh, being on social media, for example, you could use that as an opportunity to read other people's perspectives and try to put yourself in their shoes, or you could not. So to some extent, it's up to us how much we use these use these opportunities that are provided for us. Yeah, it feels like at some level from the from the the, the individual we want to empathize, there has to be some intentionality from them. They have to go into it with an open mind about wanting to to actually think about things differently. I mean, certainly you know, social media being a good example, right? There's lots of people who go into social media and they use that as an opportunity to judge and to devalue the experiences of others. So there has to be a willingness, right? Yeah, absolutely. And actually you're making me think of a, a study uh, I recently got published that was looking at uh, the correlation between social media use and empathy across different cultures. And it actually really seems to differ. So it's not that there's always uh a positive relationship that the more you use social media, the more empathy you have, or that there's always a negative relationship, the more social media you use, the less empathy you have. Uh, it really seems to depend um, on what you're doing on social media and different national groups and different cultures habitually use social media in different ways. Uh, unfortunately, within the American samples that we have, people frequently don't seem to use social media as an opportunity to empathize. I think there's also like when I'm thinking about social media and thinking about the different kinds of empathy, um, that the emotionality uh, of things uh, that we see on social media tend to like impact us in, in certain ways, more so than the perspective taking, which I think has been really not great on social media, at least the ones, <laughs> the stuff that I've, I've read. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that, um, as you mentioned, it, it really depends on on what contents, what posts we're talking about. So you could imagine, for example, that uh, if a philanthropic organization put up an image of maybe a refugee child, that might inspire some really deep emotions. Uh, they're probably going to come pretty automatically and and start hitting you as you as you look at that image. Uh, and that's um, that's that emotional empathy we were talking about. And as you see, that's quite different from something that might make you think a little bit more, but not necessarily arouse those emotions. In the in the course that I teach on conservation psychology, um, we talk a lot about that fine line between um, creating emotions that um, make you want to do something positive versus just paralyzing you with fear and sadness. Is the same thing true with empathy? Is there a fine line there? Yeah, so there are the, uh, what are sometimes called the dark sides to empathy. Um, so 
certain emotional responses, uh, distress, for example, if you're the sort of person who gets very distressed when you see somebody else suffering, that can that can inhibit. Uh, pro-social behavior that can lead you to to sort of want to withdraw and escape from the situation rather than wanting to help. Um, so there there are sort of these closely related constructs to empathy that some people, depending on the definition, would call empathy um, that that could lead to to sort of negative responses. Uh, and in my own work, I focused on on how those just sort of distressed emotions can lead people uh, to treat quite poorly. Uh, victims who are suffering, particularly uh, victims of sexual assault or other um, victims of other crimes where there's a, a tendency to, to blame. And so those sort of emotions can get wrapped up and lead people to, to be quite cruel, actually. Uh, sometimes empathy is not always the pro-social motivator we want it to be. Yeah, I was just thinking back to you know, that there was this ad that I remember seeing on TV that was trying to get you to donate to some cause. But I, I remember that it ended up having such a it was such a painful ad for people to watch that I think people just routinely flipped the channel the second it it came on. Right. It was. And so it ended up having that sort of paralysis feel that I think Georgina is describing this like, no, I can't I can't handle this. Um, it's It's too much. How do you? Uh, yeah, sorry. Were you going to say something? No, no. I was. I was just thinking that that you were absolutely right, and and that sort of um, if you are the sort of person who generally feels those feelings of distress when you see other people suffering, that can can lead to quite some long term problems as well. So uh, a tendency to feel personal distress uh, is associated with burnout, so especially if you're in sort of a medical profession or another helping profession. Uh, but on the other hand, those other types of empathy we were talking about, so feelings of concern and compassion in response to someone's suffering, those actually protect against burnout. Uh, so it, it really depends as we started the conversation with what type of empathy we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I don't think I we, we talked about that I'm really curious about is sort of going back to the beginning when you started, whether it was graduate school or, or in college, what got you really interested in this in the first place? Ah, let me think all the way back. Um, I think I was, I was interested in how um, our experiences on our life sort of generally shape who we are. Uh, and so I sort of got interested in sort of how um, technology or how our hobbies can, can influence, you know, who we are, sort of broadly speaking, whether we're a good person, whether we help others, and that sort of led slowly into this more specific interest in how they, how these experiences can influence influence our empathy. And then, as I mentioned, um, I think just a, a tendency to be skeptical and uh, of these sort of quick fixes. So uh, when people are putting out there, well, you know, virtual reality is going to make us so much more empathetic. I, sort of have a certain healthy skepticism around that and thinking, well, if this is an ability, if it's a muscle like everything else is, it's going to take time and work. There probably isn't a quick fix to that. But I, I on the other hand, I would imagine that the technologies that are changing so quickly give us opportunities to study that very question that's, that are pretty accessible. Like you're going to be um, beginning some research here um, where like just everyday participants can 
do one of these like um, interactions and try and grow their empathy muscle um, or strengthen strengthen it using VR. So do you feel like um, the research is more accessible now than it was when you began being interested in this? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because that's really where I think the the strength of virtual reality lies is not necessarily in it being a tool to increase empathy. I think it is a tool, but just one of many. But I think the where the real strength of virtual reality lies is it's an ability uh, to help us with our research. So, so much social psychology research used to rely on actors and actresses coming in and, and you would have to teach the people that had to act in these roles to act in the same way, in a standardized way for everybody. Uh, but by using virtual reality, we can conduct a lot of the same experiments without need for Confederate actors. Um, and it's the same every time. And we can also manipulate variables that we didn't used to be able to manipulate. So I can, for example, have uh, a virtual reality setting where the person who comes in, I can change their apparent race. I can change their apparent weight, their height, the accent they talk in, and then see how those variables that are sort of impossible to experimentally ma manipulate in the real world uh, influence people's actions in virtual reality. So I think that uh, the the success of virtual reality is, is going to be for, for research, especially social psychology research. It also gives us this amazing ability to measure variables that we wouldn't normally be able to measure. So even a pretty cheap virtual reality headset these days will give you uh, data and information on where people are standing in the room, whether they're leading towards the person they're talking to or leaning away and really give us some of the rich behavioral data that previously you would have had to observe or record and then code by hand. So these virtual reality things um, have the ability to like have connectors like in your hands and your feet so that you can track them moving in a space and leaning. Yeah, well, actually, the headset itself will track sort of your positionality and, and your head sort of rotation in, in uh, 360 degrees. You can buy additional equipment that will, um, you know, really give you finger movements or you can even actually get a whole body, a whole body suit uh, <laughs> if, if you really want to. But it's really amazing how much data you will get just from the headset alone. And one of the things I really want to be able to do at some point is to use that data, use that uh, implicit behavioral data to predict people's empathy. Um, so at the moment, when we measure empathy, we, we're normally relying on questionnaires and self-reports. We're just sort of asking people, hey, how much empathy do you feel for this person? And of course, people lie or they lack insight into their own feelings. Uh, but one of the things I hope to have is a, a essentially a physical measure of empathy. Uh, so correlating sort of positional data is a person who's more empathetic, more likely to lean in? When do they look away? When do they make eye contact? How do they hold themselves? And so I think there could be a, a real ability to be able to measure how we treat others uh, using that sort of uh, behavioral data. You know, when I, when, whenever I think about um, empathy and I, and I think about sort of what, what are some of the, the, times in my life where I've really shifted my thinking on something, whatever, it's oftentimes involved great storytelling, right? It's oftentimes involved a person who is able to put me in that perspective through whether it's written or a film or, or something. And I, I'm curious to know sort of what what you think about the role of thing, of, of reading and, and other sorts of art forms when it comes to empathy enhancement. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a, a a big proponent of storytelling and its importance in generating empathy. Uh, so I, I've worked on, I've collaborated on some research projects. Uh, we've actually looked at the effect of, of reading. Uh, and reading um, fiction is another, essentially another opportunity to practice empathizing. You have to understand and try and figure out what those characters are thinking and what they're feeling, uh, which is a very low stakes environment to practice, to practice empathizing. And the same is true when we sort of engage with any other narrative art form, whether it be going to see a play or a movie. Um, I was really delighted to be on a panel where they put my virtual reality research next to us, some wonderful research coming out of the University of Cambridge in England on theater, uh, which might not be an obvious connection uh, to people outside of the world, but actually they're both really about storytelling. And one of the persistent results I find out of my work with virtual reality is that Virtual reality is a tool that can help increase empathy, but it doesn't really tend to do it any more so in sort of more low tech solutions, uh, such as watching a movie or reading a book. And so what we're seeing here is, I think, the power of storytelling. You don't necessarily need the fancy 3D graphics. You don't necessarily need uh, the 360 degree video. I mean, when we go to a play and maybe the costumes aren't that great or the settings aren't that great, we still get immersed in that story. And that still leads us an opportunity to try and take the character's perspective and empathize with what they're feeling. So in that way, virtual reality is just another storytelling device that is no more or less effective than these other tools we have in our toolkit. I think it's always really good to remember that. Uh, often we think like the highest tech uh, solution is the best solution. When And so it's, it's really great to hear you say that like some low tech things also uh, do the, the same sort of thing. And so I, I just think that that is tremendous. Yeah, it's actually, um, oh, go ahead, please. I, I, I was just thinking there is one benefit that I can see to VR at the moment, but sort of uh, above and beyond the sort of low tech solutions would be that it's it's got that novelty factor at the moment. So if part of the trouble, for example, for philanthropic organizations is just getting people interested in the first place, maybe they're not going to read that news article, maybe they're not going to watch that show, but maybe they would take part in that virtual reality experience. So that sort of gives maybe VR the edge, but only for so long as it is the novel technology. Yeah, that is really interesting. And, you know, one of the things um, I was just thinking about is you and I in our, our work, there, there's a thing that we have in common in that um, it is oftentimes, even even though we've got all sorts of good ways to encourage people to be less angry, um, but people don't necessarily want that. They aren't necessarily motivated that. Do you find similar sorts of motivational problems when it comes to empathy? And then what do you think are some of the ways past that? I mean, how, how can we get someone to say, yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, you, you just answered it in part, right? Some novel technologies, but what are some other approaches that we have to, to get people to consider making this change, building that muscle, so to speak? Yeah, and how to encourage people to, to do the empathy gym. It's definitely really hard. There's some, uh, there's some great research. Uh, Daryl Cameron does some, some wonderful stuff where he offers people an opportunity to empathize or not empathize, and they will choose to not empathize every time. Like it's, it's too much work. People don't want to choose to keep trying to empathize with, with someone else. So we definitely appreciate this is effortful. This is difficult. This is something people are going to choose to avoid if they can. Uh, so as you say, Ryan, it's all about trying to, um, trying to incentivize that. 
Uh, I've recently been involved in a project that was looking to see whether curiosity could be used as an incentivizer by, by prompting people's curiosity about somebody else. Maybe that will encourage them uh, to empathize. Um, so sort of deliberately withholding little snippets of information so that you, you don't quite know enough, but you're, in, you're encouraged to find out more. Um, but unfortunately, this is uh, this is the big open question is how can we motivate people to put that effort in? We know that when they do put the effort in, they can grow this empathy muscle. But as of yet, we haven't quite figured out how to encourage them. These are all just things I love talking about so much. And and I'm just so happy you're here, Alison Jane. I'm going <laughs> to tell you that right now. I'm super <laughs> I, glad to be here, too. I um No, I... I a thousand ideas are racing through my head from everything you uh, about everything you just said. So I plan on coming and talking talking to you more when uh, when I have an opportunity. G, do you have any other questions, or when do we when do we shift to our uh, our five final questions? So I, I think this is a, a great time and um, thinking about the curiosity uh, thing. Uh, I think we decided we were going to do our or do a, a flashback to our five questions since Allison Jane is new to UW Green Bay and. Um, I also echo Ryan's thought that we are so happy that you are here, and so I think we should create some curiosity by uh, asking you some questions that we are curious about. And so, Ryan, do you want to go first? I will. So we've got five of these, hence the name of the segment, Five Questions. <laughs> um, the first one is, what did you want to be when you were six years old? Oh, I wanted to be an artist. All right. And then I remember I was in my parents' Ford car driving uh, to see my grandparents and my sister, who's older than me, asked me what I wanted to be. And I told her I wanted to be an artist. And she told me that I wouldn't make any money doing that. And so I shouldn't do that. So instead, I decided to be a professor. <laughs> <laughs> there was um, no one there to save you from that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Excellent. Did you have a preferred type of, of art? That um, at six, I guess, finger painting was probably top of my list. Um, but I, I did actually have a, um, a fondness for, for the fine arts for, for it lasted for many years after that. Um, but I, I've solidly had to put it in my hobby box rather than my career box for quite a while. Hmm. That is awesome. All right. So my question um, is related to our previous fall or autumn conversation. So pumpkin spice, yay or nay? Yay, definitely. I discovered pumpkin pie when I moved to the States and I and I love it. So I, I try and buy as many pumpkin flavored food stuffs as I can. Oh, this is great to know. And for the listeners who don't know, um, where, uh, where would you... Uh, consider your home before you came to the States? Uh, so so my hometown is a, a little town uh, in Northern England. It's about 25 miles out from Manchester. I did not know that actually. Sorry, as we were talking <laughs> about this. I think earlier when we when we started this out, I think I referred to you as being from the Northeast, but that's that's where you just recently moved from, correct? That's right. Yeah. So I, I moved to the States almost a decade ago now and, and have had most of my time on the East Coast. Okay. I was asking myself if I detected an accent and what that accent was. And now I know. 
So it's all explained. Thank you. Um, so that wasn't one of our five questions. So that one. <laughs> my my stu my students have had a, a ball trying to guess where I'm from, especially as my accent has a tendency to flip from one to the other in rapid succession. Um, so they've had a a lot of fun with that. Well, that 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 may have actually answered what was going to be my next question, but we're going to see if my stereotypes uh, of of England hold true. And that is, what is your favorite sport? Yeah, yeah, English football. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, well, then I do have a follow up, and that, that is, what is your favorite Premier League team? If you have uh, one, yes, of course I have one. Um, <laughs> uh, Crystal Palace, uh, which is actually a London team. Um, because my dad was from London and had I not supported Crystal Palace, I, I think he might have disowned me. Okay. Uh, so I, I grew up as a as an as an Eagles fan. Um, although I will note that anybody from Manchester will know that man people from Manchester do not support Manchester United, which is not a Manchester team. There's only one team in Manchester. <laughs> yep. Currently good in sixth or seventh place, I think. Um, so yes, very good. Wow. I, I love that little shade you. <laughs> All right. So my next question is, um, when you have time to read, which when you're a brand new assistant professor teaching all new courses probably isn't uh, right now, but when you do, um, what type of books do you like to read? Like nonfiction, fiction? Like, what do you like to, to read? Uh, I I do like to read both fiction and nonfiction, so I'm not sure I can put a solid uh, preference on one or the other. Um, I'm trying to think of the last book I read was a novel, um, which was a dystopian future sort of novel. So I, I definitely can get behind those. Although I'm also a big fan of um, courthouse drama thrillers, uh, whodunits, uh, that kind of thing, definitely. Both really great genres. Nicely done. <laughs> All right. Last question, Ryan. Better yeah. make it a good one. Are you, um, this might be a false dichotomy, but I'm still going to ask, are you messy or organized? Uh, I'd, I'd say pretty organized, um, both in, in terms of physical space, but more in terms of my time. I, I schedule out my day. So I actually have like scheduled time to eat lunch and things like that. So I, I definitely <laughs> over-organize my time. I am completely on board with that uh, sort of planning and uh, applaud you for it in advance. Hey, Me too. It has been really great talking to you. And if our listeners want to learn more about you, where can they do that? Uh, so you can find me on social media. I have a, a relatively active Instagram account, which is at Allison Jane Martingano, and a Twitter account, which is at AJ Martingano. Excellent. Um, super, super nice to talk to you. I have a billion more questions, but for sake of time, I will ask you those off air at some point and, or we will hopefully have you back someday if you are willing, because this has been great. Um, for those of you who want to follow us, uh, we are at Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's a good place to ask questions, request topics. You can follow me on Twitter and everywhere else at Anger Professor Georgina. How about you? You can find me at Georgina WD. So G E O R J E A N N A W D. 
Thank you, Georgina. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Bleese. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Allison Jane Martingano. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungess. Keep being amazing. Music